Our second reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, the ninth chapter, beginning with the 36th verse. Friends, let us continue listening now for a word from God. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and she died. Her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Now, Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Peter, come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. And all the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Tabitha had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, and then he got down on his knees and he prayed. And turning toward the dead woman, he said to her, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. Peter took her by the hand and he helped her to her feet. And then he called for the believers, especially the widows. Other translations render that line. He called for the widows and the saints. And he presented her to them alive. Now this became known all over Joppa. And many people, many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. This too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our sermon today is titled, An Impossible Thing. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, send your spirit now that it might do an impossible thing. That through its work, this old story with old characters and faraway places might suddenly be bridged to our lives today. That the characters sitting here in this place, that these hearts that are open to you might be brought back to life. We pray these things, O God, because we know with you and you alone they are possible. For you, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Fred Beekner writes of a psychology experiment that was being conducted at the time he was a student at Princeton University. The experiment went like this. There was a door set up, and in the door there was a small hole. And on the other side of the door was a room. And students who were participating in the experiment would be asked to step up to that hole and to peek through and to look for a specific object they were told about beforehand. They would look for a few seconds and then they would be asked to step back and answer a series of questions. Where was the object? How big was the object? What color was the object? And then every student who participated was asked the same final question. They would be asked by the facilitator of the experiment, did you notice anything else about the room? And almost to the person, 
Each participant gave the same answer. No. We didn't notice anything else about the room. But here's the thing. The room on the other side of that door, it was a crazy room. One wall was higher than another. The ceiling was at a wacky angle. The floors all fell off to different sides. Beekner surmised that the students who participated didn't see all that craziness because they hadn't been told to expect it. Beekner, in his Beekner way, goes on to say, I've often thought, too, that if this is the case, then if an angel were to appear at this moment and outspread its golden wings, I've often thought that the chance would be that none of us would see it. We wouldn't see it because we haven't been told to expect to see an angel with its outstretched wings. Did you notice anything else about the room? That's that's the most interesting thing to me about this story. There is the miracle itself, which is amazing on its own. But almost equally as miraculous to me is who notices that the miracle has even happened. I wondered as I read this story whether or not anyone would have noticed it had happened if Peter had not invited people back into the room and showed them, here, look, this woman who was dead is now alive. I wondered as I read this story if we had been on the other side of that door and peek through the hole, whether we would have noticed that the miracle had happened either. The most interesting thing in this story is who notices the miracle. And isn't it appropriate that on this Mother's Day, the ones who witness the miracle, the ones who do notice, in other words, are all women. And not just any women, but widows and saints. That's an important detail. In the ancient world and first century, Palestine widowed women were among the most vulnerable group of people that were around. In that patriarchal culture, if you were unmarried or widowed or single for any reason and you were a female, it meant that you had little and most times zero access to any form of of economic upward mobility. And so the widows of that time, they they relied almost exclusively on the aid of others. They stuck together. It's really interesting if you flip back three chapters in Acts, and in chapter 6, you read about one of the first things the early Christians did after Pentecost. They looked around them, and one of the most concerning things to the early church were the widows. The widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food at the time, and so the Christians, they formed a particular office of people to care for the widows. Do you know their name? Deacons. We still have them today. So we can understand then why for these women, Tabitha's death was not just a moment of grief and of sadness, It was quite literally a life-threatening crisis. 
Tabitha, she was not a deacon, but it does tell us she was a disciple. The only woman in all the scriptures who is given that title, disciple. And it appears by all accounts that she earned that title by serving the economic and practical needs of these vulnerable women, these widows of Joppa. A service that she rendered almost entirely out of her own resources. And so when Tabitha dies, there is grief, but with the grief comes immediate and dire implications. And yet, isn't it interesting that the ones who Peter calls into the room to witness the miracle are these women? Isn't it interesting that by all measures, it seems uh, it is the widows who are the only ones who are equipped with the eyes and with the hearts to notice the miracle. Peter calls for the widows and for the saints. I wonder why Peter doesn't send those two who were sent to retrieve him out again to go collect the other disciples and bring them back and, and see this amazing thing that has happened. Why does Peter not send those two out to go visit with the wealthiest supporters of the early Christian movement and invite them in? Look what your dollars can do. Instead, he calls for the widows and for the saints. The only reason I can come up with for why he calls for them is because Peter knows that this is the only group of people, the only group, who expect a miracle. They expect a miracle because they have already seen one. Do you remember what they're clutching onto when Peter shows up at the house? They're holding the garments that Tabitha has woven for them. They're clutching the very evidence that the reason these people who live at the verge of death, are even living and breathing now, is because they have already experienced a miracle in this woman named Tabitha. They are people who look through the hole on the door and they expect to see an angel on the other side unfolding her wings. Peter called for the widows and for the saints. I love in the same chapter where Beekner talks about this experiment, he goes on to recount his memories of the earliest versions of the Candid Camera Show, where impossible things, and episode after episode, impossible things happen. It's kind of funny because his material is a little dated, so one of the impossible things he remembers from Candid Camera are driverless cars. Can you imagine <laughs> such a thing? But he remembers, too, an episode where a couple is sitting at an outdoor cafe and there's a flower on their table and the flower just casually leans over and sips out of the fellow's Coke. (laughs) Impossible things. Buechner writes, what happened again and again in those episodes was that when people were confronted with these impossible situations, they did not seem to see them or at least they pretended not to see them. Because, he says, life is confusing enough as it is. If we had been there that day, and Peter called 
for us. Would we have noticed the miracle at hand? Or would we have pretended not to see anything at all? Because let's be honest, life is confusing enough as it is. A few years ago, there was a five-year-old boy named Charlie who lost his younger brother. Charlie and his family had just recently moved from the West Coast to Brooklyn, New York, and not long after, his younger brother became very sick. And this family in this new place, no friends, no community, no church, no roots, were facing these impossible decisions on their own. Through a friend of a friend, they were connected with a pastor on the other side of the river in Manhattan. And this pastor and her church stepped in and they walked with this family as they said goodbye to Charlie's little brother, as they made those gut-wrenching, impossible decisions. After the funeral, the pastor remembers how she was prepared to help this family find a church home closer to where they lived, but as it turns out, the family was not interested in a different church. So bonded were they after this experience, tethered, she wrote, by sorrow and love. And so the family, every Sunday, began trekking across the river to Manhattan, through the subway, up the stairs, down the road. And for many weeks it went on where the family would come and sit and worship, and Charlie would sort of hide between his parents' legs there in the pews. And after a few months of that, Charlie finally decided he was ready to go to Sunday school, but only if his father would come with him and sit nearby. And a few weeks after Charlie began coming to Sunday school, his teacher in that class prepared a lesson on a story from the book of Acts about a woman named Tabitha who died and about the ways that she was raised and how widows had surrounded her close after death and clutched to the fabric that she had woven for them. The teacher early in this lesson began to panic suddenly. Wouldn't Charlie wonder why Jesus did not bring his brother back to life? Why God hadn't answered his prayers or the prayers of his desperate parents? But then something amazing happened. After this teacher delivered her lesson on this story, this quiet little boy named Charlie, for the first time ever in that class, began to speak. And he told the class of preschoolers, preschoolers to second graders, that, that his brother had died. And that Jesus had raised his brother too. And that his brother was with Jesus in heaven and that his brother was also still with him. And then he took off this woven bracelet that he had with him every day, a bracelet that reminded him of his brothers. And he showed it to the class just as those women showed Peter their woven tunics. And this class, the pastor remembers, this class of preschoolers to second graders, they sat perfectly still. 
Every eye and every ear was focused on the testimony of their Sunday school classmate, a classmate who had walked that 23rd Psalm through the valley of the shadow of death and was now there in their midst speaking about it. There was a little girl in that class. She, too, had walked through valleys. She was being raised by her grandmother because her own mother struggled with addiction and was in and out of treatment. This little girl's name was Heaven. Heaven, the pastor remembers at the end of Charlie's sharing, spontaneously stood up. And she went over and gave her classmate a hug. And following her example, one by one, every child in that class got up and hugged their little brother in Christ and his father. Heaven hugged Charlie that day. An impossible thing. Some might even say a miracle. Think again about that experiment at Princeton long ago. Imagine that door in front of you. Except this time on the other side of the door is not a crazy room. It's your life. Your crazy life. All of our crazy lives. In that room then are all the highest highs we've ever known, but also all the lowest lows, all the loves that we've ever had and all the disappointments that we've walked through. In that room are all of your friends, all of your foes, all your realized dreams and your unfulfilled desires in that room just beyond that door. And on that door is a small hole. Can you see it? Imagine stepping up and peeking through. What do you notice on the other side? 